0: So, this evening we're going to open up in Philippians chapter 2. Over the summer, we went through, in three weeks, Philippians chapter Um, 1. Also, this is the end of the month. So, this is normally when our soul service would be. Um, But our soul service has now come to an end. Um, We are waiting until Christmas and something new and improved, something that is more involving of our young people uh, is going to develop. So... Until Christmas, um, I'm going to preach Sunday evenings, the last one of the month. So I thought um, we're going to go through Philippians chapter 2. It's going to be pretty spaced out, so you'll do well. Maybe you can listen to the last one before the next one. Um, But we're going to go through Philippians chapter 2. So we're going to open up at the first 11 verses this evening. And I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And it reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Heavenly Father, would you speak to each and every one of us this evening? Lord, would you take away any distractions? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our ears and speak to each one of us? Amen. So, we're opening up this second chapter. um, And Paul moves on to address an issue that is clearly impacting the Philippians, the church at Philippi. A little recap of chapter 1, Paul greets his friends with a really friendly greeting. So we see that, that the church at Philippi are his friends, they're his close friends. He's really frank with them, he's really open with them. There's a real sense of honesty there that shows the nature of their relationship. He encourages them, he sends them a lot of encouragement. And we looked at what it looks like to encourage somebody despite really difficult circumstances the really difficult circumstances that Paul was facing here and in the last of the 12 verses of that chapter we read of Coles and guess urge to them to live a life that is worthy of the gospel he urged them to be fruitful and he urged them to move in their faith and to work through the things that divided them they sent a messenger And he delivered this generous gift to Paul from the church. And he brought good news about the church, about the good work, about the fact that they were fruitful. But he also brought bad news about the potential, about the possibility of division. There was problems. And it's always a bit disconcerting because this was a mature church. This was a church, one of the strongest there was. A church that was going well and there was division there was two things that were causing this division. And at the centre of both of them, I guess, was pride. The first division we read of in the first three ch- eight verses of chapter 3, which was about false teachers, but the second division, which I think Paul is focusing on in these verses, we find in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And I'll read the second and third verses of that. I plead with, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have clearly contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are also, who are in the book of life. We have two women, two women in the church that served with Paul. That helped Paul to spread the gospel throughout Philippi. Their names were written in the book of life. So these are saved women. And there was clearly a problem here. There was a bit of a rift between these two women. Quite what it was, we don't know. But there was something that was at risk of blowing up. And causing a serious problem in the fellowship. It was clearly something that was quite visible. It was clearly something that was quite public. And it was going to cause a problem And I think there's a couple of things that Paul offers in these verses. Um, And I think, just going back into chapter 2, our first point I think we find in verses 2 to 4, which is our call to unity. I've underlined some words in here that I think kind of highlight this idea of unity, just in these three verses. Those verses again read, Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This letter is addressed to the Christians. It's addressed to those that are in Christ's. And as Christians, we are to be of the same mind. We looked at Paul's single-mindedness, this idea that he was so focused on the gospel, everything else could be sacrificed for the furtherance of God's kingdom. But in this, we are told to be of the same mind, to be of the same love, to be of one mind, to count others more significant than ourselves, to put our own interests under those of others. As I was thinking about this, there was two words as I was thinking about unity that I thought were quite interesting. The two words are unity and uniformity. And I think there's a real difference here, a really important difference that is good to establish. Uniformity is not unity. Uniformity is like putting on a school uniform and all being the same. Having strict rules and regulations to make sure that we fit into the same block. And how are we the same? Because we're doing exactly what you're told. There's no option, you have no say. You turn up without the uniform, you get turned away. Uniformity is this idea of pressure coming out with and pressuring you. But unity isn't like that. Unity isn't, you all have to be exactly the same and fit the same mold. Unity is this idea of the heart. In unity, there is room for disagreements. There is room for people thinking differently. But ultimately, it's a matter of where our hearts are. That in those differences, we can still be of the same mind, of the same love, of one mind the letter addressed to the christians to those that are in christ why because those that are in christ should be working towards unity to be working towards love not division and rivalry and what paul's saying to these guys here what he's saying in this letter is your arguments are showing me that actually there's not a lot of this here There's not a lot of spiritual development going on here because you're not really looking like you're growing. There is some problems here. And you know, it won't be solved by uniformity. It won't be solved by people doing the same thing. It won't be solved by battering people with rules and telling them exactly what they have to do. It won't be created. Unity is not created by forcing people, but it will be resolved when your heart is right. It'll be solved when our hearts are right with Christ and with each other. Unity is the aim. Verse 3 shows us what the root of the problem is. The root of the problem here is selfishness. Our human nature is one of selfishness. We're selfish beings that want to see what is best for me, what is best for my family. That is what is most important. We want to prosper, we want our family to prosper. We want to hold it to ourselves. And so often people are willing to go to frightening extremes for their own selfishness. I used to love watching American crime programs. And the dude with really white teeth and really orange skin would pop up. And he'd be like, you know, tonight's show we've got the woman that murdered her husband. And what would come along is this really massive story of this woman that murdered her husband because he had like $5 million in insurance money. Or something like that. That's all it boiled down to. That there was a ton of money in the insurance. And if she could kill him... He fell down the stairs or something. But it became obvious that she'd done something. And it was all this idea of selfishness. But what a... What an extreme. What extreme of selfishness... That somebody is willing to go... For a bit of money. But so often our selfishness isn't that. We don't consider killing people for our own game. But so often... Pettiness is our selfishness. No, I want this that certain way. Or no, do you know what you could have put petrol in the car, but I'm gonna have to go and do it tomorrow, and that really annoys me. I'm sure there's loads of little things you can think about that annoy you, that sometimes are just us being a little bit selfish. And there becomes a problem when that pettiness becomes really, really important to us. When our petty selfishness starts to take over. And that could very well have been what these two women were arguing about. It wasn't something massive and doctrinal that they needed to argue over. But it was most likely just something petty. And because they were so staunch in what they believed. And what they thought was right in their personal preference. They were looking at causing a problem. There's a disagreement. But Paul urges the people not to take sides. It's so sad that a mature, a fruitful church was being put in jeopardy. Their unity, their moving forward in Christ was being put in jeopardy because of these two women that were arguing. And we must always be wary of the things that can disrupt, that can weaken, that can destroy the unity of the church. Because so often they come from little things. So often it can be unassuming in small ways. As Paul draws an end to Second Corinthians in chapter 12 and verse 20, he warns the church, he leaves them with this. For I fear that perhaps when I come home, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. All these things are wrong. All these things are bad and are a potential danger in every church. And this is what Paul was addressing with them. This wasn't to do with doctrine or practice or big stuff that needs wrestled with. But it was about personal preference. It was about small things and there's no place for that. So how do we grow? How do we grow as a community that is of the same mind, that is the same love? If a mature church like the Philippians couldn't get this right, what hope does it give us? Where do we find this true unity? We find true unity in humility. We find true unity in the greatest example of humility that Paul gives us. True unity comes from a humble person. A person that is so hungering over Christ that everything else pales into into insignificance. That personal preferences, actually, do you know what? I don't care. As long as we are together, as long as we are moving, as long as we are getting to where Christ wants us to be. We're seeing people come to know the Lord. We're seeing people being strengthened in the Lord. These small things, actually, they don't really matter. If you find any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his incredible love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy towards your brother and sisters, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. United. United around a common aim, a common goal to see Christ magnified in our community. I use the analogy, this idea of a telescope. That a telescope, you can't see all the stars. Just like in us, you can't see all the glory of God. But through a telescope, you can get a glimpse. You can get a glimpse of the stars, of what it looks like in space. Just like as we are telescopes that you can catch glimpses of the glory of God in each of us if we are focused in the right place. A united church, a church made of humble people, willing to put their preferences to the side for the sake of the kingdom of God, is a Christ-centered church. Paul moves on to give us, I think, three examples of the greatest, most humble man that has ever lived. He gives us the example of Christ. There are three examples, behaviours, actions that we should follow in looking to be a humble people. And we find them in verses 5 to 8. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, before, during and after, his time on earth was in the form of God. Even on earth he was fully man, yet still fully God. Never compromising, but God. Christ, still God and still man. I went to David this week slightly confused because I opened a book. Um, and I started looking through and I was just trying to grasp something of what it was that Christ was man and God. And then I went into the phrase of emptying himself. And then I started going through, I think it was MacArthur I turned to. And oh my goodness, it was, it was mind blowing stuff. We're trying to work out what Christ emptied himself of, what he didn't. It gets super confusing. But do you know, Christ came and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ refused to hold on to his divine rights and privileges as God when he came to earth. During his earthly ministry, he never minimized, he never belittled his deity, himself, who he was as God. He didn't beat about the bush about the fact that he was the Son of God, that he was at one with God the Father. He proclaims his authority over all flesh. He proclaims his power to bring eternal life. Yet he never once used that power or that authority for his personal advantage. Because his ability to do that was not something to be grasped. He willingly suffered. He willingly came and suffered the worst of possible humiliation... When he was more than entitled to come and demand honour. To demand privilege. To demand glory. His rights. His rights as God. he did not come and demand. The sinless man. The perfect man. The greatest man that there has ever been. Forfeited the privileges that he has. When he was here on earth. To be humiliated. On the cross because he loves you. He didn't need anything. All praise, all glory, all honor already belonged to him. Heaven was before him and worshipping him from the very beginning. But Christ put everything on himself to come and to save us. What grace, what humility, the most phenomenal example of somebody putting others before themselves. There's nothing greater, there's no greater fact than this that we, as sinful beings, but our God left his throne in heaven to come to earth to save us from the sin that we inflict on ourselves. What grace! What grace and what humility. And it's this. It's this attitude of selfless giving. Of ourselves. Of our possessions. Of the power of the privilege. That should characterise us. That belong to Christ. The greatest example. And we. We. As followers, as emulators, as disciples, as ambassadors of Christ. The greatest we can do, we know, is to follow this example. To follow this incredible example of our King. The thought that personal preference, that gossip, that lies can divide churches when Christ gave his all for us is such a horrendous thought. We are called to be a people of one mind. What is the mind of Christ? What is the same mind that we are called to have? It is a mind that thinks of others. It's an attitude that seeks to do best by others. It's a mind that says, I can't keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. I will gladly lay aside myself and pay whatever price is necessary. To do what is important. In verse 7 we read. But empties himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. The second point in that is he serves. He put others before himself. And he serves. To think about others. To look at others. Difficulties, struggles, situations. Is insufficient. It's not enough. It's not enough to think about it. The priest, the Levite, as they walked by, the Jewish man lying at the side of the road, beaten, dying, they knew that that was wrong. I hope. They knew that there was something not right about that. But they did nothing. It took the Samaritan man to empty himself. It took him to interrupt his plans, to go out of his way physically, financially, in his time, in every way that he could. He went out of his way. Christ didn't just leave his privilege, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, not of the fact that he was God, not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of so much of his privilege. He went from master To servant, from life to death, even death on a cross. When Christ came into this world, he was united with humanity. He was willing to come and to humble himself so that we might be lifted up, so that we might be lifted up from this sinful state that we cannot get ourselves out of. Jesus didn't pretend to be a servant. He didn't just pick a character, he wasn't playing a role, but he was a servant. He took on the form of a servant, but he was still in the form of God. It's incredible. You see, this means that his form, that his nature is that of a servant. That servanthood was such one of the truest expressions of, of God's innermost nature, that God is a serving God, that He was the God man, divine, and human and one, and He came, He could have promised anything that He wanted, and He came as the lowest of the low, as a servant. Think about it. He had the right to enter this world however he pleased, and He came. As a servant, you notice as you read through any of the Gospels that it's always Jesus who serves others. It's never others that serve him. There was fishermen, there was prostitutes, there was tax collectors, the sick, the sorrowful. Jesus was there. Jesus was at the beck and call. We read in Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. But to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What does this tell us about the God that we serve? Not only that he left a place of eternal praise and worship. But he came for the exact opposite of praise. He came to serve. This is Our greatest example. The greatest example of service. How do we display unity as a church? We serve each other. You know, it blows me away being in this church... Throughout the week, being in this building throughout the week. And just how many people are in and out and doing stuff. It amazes me when when Robbie tells me stories of how many people are out and visiting others. It's incredible how many people, in ways that we don't see, are out and serving in this community. It's amazing. It's amazing to be a part of a church that is seeking to engage the unemployed. That is seeking new ways in which we can serve not only ourselves, but also the community out there. There's this idea of emptying ourselves. In our Western culture, time is one of the most precious things that we have. We've got a machine to do everything to save us time. Because time is so important. So to give time, do you know what? It's such a radical thing. In our country, it's such a radical thing to give up time to spend time with somebody else, to serve others, others that we maybe don't know that we want to serve. It means that we're vigilant, it means that we're ready to address issues that come before us. That if, do you know what, a personal preference gets in the way of something, it doesn't become an issue. How do you serve those around you? How do you serve and get alongside those that you know are struggling? And finally in verse 8. We read, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The third thing I think we learn about unity here that we learn from the greatest example in Christ is sacrifice. I don't know if you know of this spider. It's called the black lace weaver spider. It's a pretty small spider. It grows to about two centimetres. But the mother lays her eggs. You've probably heard about this in like primary school science. I don't know what class you find out. Maybe doing a project on animals or something. But she lays her eggs. And then she lays another batch of eggs so that the first batch of eggs, when they hatch, can live off the second batch of eggs so that they can eat them. And not only that, but once that supply is done, the new eggs that have hatched eat the mother. She encourages them to devour her. I just think it's the wonders of the animal kingdom. But it's this idea of sacrifice. That's such a big sacrifice from a spider. It's such a big sacrifice for something that doesn't have a concept of what they're doing. But do you know what? See, that spider is focused on giving what is best for their offspring. The example that we're given here is sacrifice. Obedience to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Many people are willing to serve and do things if it doesn't cost them anything. But if there's a price to pay, if there's some kind of sacrifice involved, all of a sudden the 50 people that wanted to do something very, very quickly is a lot less than 50. Why? Because we like convenience. We like things that doesn't cost us anything. We like things that are still within the comfort zone that don't reach a level of sacrifice. But Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the death of a Saviour. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of you and for the sins of me. if we are serious about submitting ourselves to God, if we are serious about growing in unity, if we're serious about humbling ourselves, we cannot avoid sacrifice. To live lives to the glory of God and to the good of others, we must be willing to pay the price, the price that it takes to honour Christ. That was Paul's attitude the whole way through this. Paul's attitude was Christ comes first, everything else comes second. If I die, so what? See you later. I don't care. Because I'm going to be with Jesus and it's going to be the greatest thing that there has ever been. Paul was ready. He was ready to sacrifice absolutely anything for the purposes of furthering the kingdom of God. I like this quote to have a humble and submissive mind is not to ask the question, how much are you willing to suffer, but how much are you willing to sacrifice? We often get asked that straw man question of if you get a gun put to your head and if you, somebody asks you if you're a Christian, would you say yes? Would you say no? Do you know, realistically, it's not going to happen to us. I pray it never happens to any of us, but the chances of it happening are pretty slim. But this idea of what are you willing to give? What are you willing to do with your life? It's one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith. That the more we give, the more we receive. The more we sacrifice, the more God blesses. This is why a humble, a united, a submissive mind to Christ. Brings joy. Why? Because it brings us closer to Christ. It makes us more like Christ. And to share in the joy that we find in Christ, we must also share in his sacrifice. I want to use this last point as the conclusion in verses 9 to 11, the verses that we read at the beginning. Just briefly to read this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the goal for each and every one of us to spend eternity with this God. To spend eternity with a God that is exalted. The name that is above every name. The name that knees will bow before. The name that every tongue will confess. We look to do as Christ did. To glorify God in all that we do. And you know what? Rivalry and anger and selfishness, conceit and lies have no place. Have no place in any of this. Things that see ministries go head to head. Things that see people go head to head. Is not a good thing. It's never a good thing. But it's vain and it's empty. Jesus humbled himself and God highly exalted him. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal right there. That's the goal to spend eternity with this God. There's such an extreme in this passage. Of what Christ gave up. Of how Christ humbled himself. And then just the magnificence of who he is at the end here. The magnificence of who Christ is. Why is unity important? Because unity brings glory to God. Because Christ made unity between man and God possible. Because Christ through his servant heart, through his ultimate sacrifice, through that he is exalted. And all knees will bow before him. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to do what it takes? To move forward as a united people to put aside these things. The things that can creep up. From anywhere? Are we ready to be a church, a people that unite and see Hamilton transformed? Is that what we want to see? Are we a people that go out, that look, that serve, that sacrifice for those that need it most in our community? You know, the gospel is spoken to so many people that don't know him firstly in our lives for so many people that we come into into contact with you may be the only Christian that they know and the way that you live your life the way that you represent yourself always represents God that's the first thing so many people will see and the way that we humble ourselves the way that we serve the way that we sacrifice. Is an example of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father you are an incredible God. You are a God that is exalted. A God that is on high. That is worthy of so much more praise than we can ever give you. Lord would you grow us as a church Lord. Would you move us forward in unity Lord, would we be a church that is never penetrated by these petty things, that is penetrated by selfishness or any of these other things that Paul lists? Lord, would we be a people that are hungry for you? And would our hunger for you be evident in the way that we respond to each other, in the way that we treat each other, in the way that we interact with each other? Lord, you are an amazing God. And there is no greater privilege in life than to serve the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, would you challenge us? Amen.